Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's December 1st, everyone. Happy December 2020. Nothing much changes, though, of course. We're still obsessed with the same thing, especially on this show. We seem to have had a run on American conservatism or conservatism in, in, in general. Uh, yesterday, we had Rick Perlstein from uh, Chicago on, on the show to talk about his lengthy, substantial and very entertaining book, Reagan Land, which traces America's right turn back to 1976. Uh, and then before Rick, we had uh, Edmund Fawcett, the intellectual historian on writing about the modern history of conservatism. Uh, Fawcett's um, fourth phase, the, the most contemporary phase of uh, conservatism, he describes as hyperliberalism and the hard right. In America, of course, everybody remains obsessed with the Republican Party, its collapse morally, intellectually, politically, perhaps, although I'm not so sure of that. Uh, David Brooks, the expert on moral rot, has a wonderful piece called The Rotting of the Republican mind. We have the Washington Post similarly talking about a, 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 a party that can't change. And we have the Princeton historian, uh, Julian uh, Zelizer, um, on CNN. He's a familiar face on CNN talking about the only way that Republicans can lead again. Uh, Zelizer is not only a prolific commentator on CNN, he's also, as I said, a Princeton historian and the author of, of a really interesting new book, particularly in the context of what we've been talking about over the last couple of days, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Everyone's obsessed with this so-called New Republican Party. Uh, Julian uh, Zalazar, uh, welcome to Keen On. Um, Thank you for having me. Tell me about this character. Uh, Newt Gingrich, a strange name and a strange political career. Try to sum this guy up very briefly as an introduction. Well, he's a very uh, influential Republican who came into Washington in the late 1970s as a congressman from Georgia and introduced a new kind of toxic, no guardrails uh, partisanship that he argued was essential if Republicans ever wanted to gain power. And uh, he moves up the ranks during the 1980s by taking down key democratic fears, breaking norms and using the media as a platform to spread toxic uh, arguments and uh, use the kind of rhetoric that was considered off limits. And he becomes Speaker of the House in 1994. And he was really uh, instrumental in making the party that we see today front and center. Sounds uh, in some ways like uh, somebody else who comes to mind. Julian, talk very briefly about his earlier life. You're a historian, right, rather than a psychoanalyst, but 
it seems as if the best way to make sense of guys like Gingrich and perhaps Trump is, is, is trying to get into their head through their childhoods. I think the best book on, on Trump was by his niece. Uh, what kind of upbringing did Gingrich have? Very difficult one. He was born outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, his biological father left his mother a few days after they got married while she was still pregnant. He didn't really know him at all. Uh, his stepfather, uh, she remarried, took good care of him, but was also very tough. So he always had these fraught relationships with the father figures uh, in his life. He's also someone who moved around a lot of his youth. His, his stepdad was in the army, so he spent a lot of time moving around army bases in Europe until they settled in Georgia. So he was literally someone without roots and someone who always had a, a level of tension with, with the, the person in charge. And I think a lot of that actually plays into who he was as an outsider and who he was as someone always taking on the leader, uh, the political leaders of the moment. We had a fellow historian, another very distinguished historian on the show a couple of weeks ago, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who has a, a, a really interesting new book out, again, on similar themes called Strong Men. Uh, do you see uh, Gingrich as a strong man himself or a lover of strong men? No, he is. He's someone who is quite strong, quite forceful politically. He had that part of him, uh, which certain politicians have in that they are willing to do anything for victory. Uh, there is no check. There is no concern about will this affect our institutions? Will this affect our ability to govern? And I think the strong men, quote unquote, ultimately uh, in a negative way are the people who just throw that aside. And that's exactly who he was. There was no one who could tell him not to do something who he would listen to. Nobody at all, not even his wife. We had a number of wives. He had a number of wives, and that's another part of his, uh, it's not his upbringing, although he, he dates and marries his high school math teacher, uh, but he's married several times. He has affairs famously that became public uh, on, on, on the various women who he's with. So uh, they didn't really uh, either have the ability to control him. Uh, one of your CNN um, colleagues, um, Jake Tapper, had an excellent Atlantic piece uh, uh, earlier this year, Why Americans Fall for Grifters, uh, with a lot, lot of reference to the, the 1957 uh, movie uh, called A Face in the Crowd by uh, Ilya Kazan. Is, in your mind, uh, uh, Gingrich, is he... A conventional grifter? Well, to some extent, the, the irony is he made his name by attacking Democrats for being unethical. So a lot of his rise to power revolves around him using ethics rules put into place after Watergate to clean up Washington to argue that Democrats were too close to lobbyists. Democrats used all kinds of schemes to make money for themselves. Uh, and, and he defined himself very much uh, in that way. So a little bit of an anti-grifter public image, but privately he followed very few of those ethics laws and was constantly in trouble uh, for doing exactly what he was accusing others of doing. So in that part of his career, I think he falls, he falls into that, but he's more about partisan power in the end. I don't think the accumulation of money is his ultimate goal, although it became important. 
I really think he was more of a power broker for his party and for himself. In terms of movies, as I said, uh, is there something of, uh, of, of him in a face in the crowd? Uh, to some extent. The, the, the all-American boy from a small town who, for one reason or other, becomes um, infatuated, addicted to fame, to attention. Uh, yes. Uh, his origins very much fit that profile. He is not someone from great means. He's not someone who comes from America's elite. And he makes himself uh, into uh, an immense figure in the Republican Party, but he thirsts for attention. He needs the television cameras in front of him through this day. It's very hard for him not to say something if there's something to say. Uh, and ultimately, some people think that was the source of his downfall. When he's Speaker of the House, he's always in front of the cameras. He's always in front of the media. And too much of that ultimately turned on him. How much is the media responsible for Gingrich? Uh, some of our viewers will be familiar with his uh, story about um, about the Great War, apparently, uh, in his own autobiography, he claims that uh, visiting uh, Verdun gave him his historical perspective. But anyone can say anything. And like Trump, uh, he never saw any military action. At what point does the military, uh, does the, not the military, the, the, the media in America have a responsibility for essentially reporting anything this guy says, like Trump as well, of course? Now, he understood this very well. And in the 1980s, before there was a conservative media, there was no Fox television, talk radio on the right was still relatively small. He understood that in the era of cable news, in the era of investigative journalism, a politician could go on air, could speak to print reporters and say the most outlandish things. Uh, and if you were someone of stature, it would be reported and the corrections would be made long after, uh, after it was too late to really shape the public opinion. And I spoke to a lot of reporters in writing this book uh, who had regrets about the way in which they gave him a platform to launch these uh, pretty horrendous attacks against his opponents, even investigative journalists who were doing good work, trying to dig up the connections between money and uh, politics were weaponized by him and used as ways to advance his agenda. So uh, without the media, you wouldn't really have uh, Newt Gingrich. That was the basis in which he uh, elevated himself. To be fair to, the, to some people in the media, uh, Mother Jones, one of the more distinguished left-wing publications, did reveal the profound hypocrisy of Gingrich with his obsession with morality and, of course, the fact that he himself was a swinger or a wannabe swinger. One can't really imagine Newt Gingrich swinging very successfully. Uh, one of the things that comes out of your book, I think, um, is, uh, Julian, is the fact that Gingrich was a member, if you like, to, to bring up another movie illusion of the grifters. It wasn't just him, was it? Um, it was Lee Atwater, it was Roger Ailes. There was a generation of grifters who got it quickly and understood that they could essentially mislead the American people. That's exactly right. Uh, the book is about Newt Gingrich and, and how he became powerful, but it's really about a generation of Republicans who came of age in the 1980s and understood that this style of partisan politics would work. 
it would be effective. And so I have other characters in the book. Lee Atwater is one of the most important. Uh, he's a political consultant. He runs George <laughs> W. Bush's 1988 campaign against Governor Michael Dukakis. And he does in campaign politics the kind of character assassination that Gingrich practiced in congressional politics. And what's remarkable about the 80s isn't that they exist. There's always figures like a Gingrich or Atwater in American politics, but they are elevated into the top levels of the Republican leadership. The Republican Party becomes the party that will host this sort of politician. And that's the sea change that I think is important. It distinguishes this period from the 1950s, for example, where Senator Joseph McCarthy rose to power, but ultimately didn't become part of the leadership. That's not what happens in the 1980s. And so that club you're talking about becomes extraordinarily influential. The, uh, I mentioned the Edmund Fawcett book on conservatism, a must read. I don't know if you've read it. Um, uh, you should. It's actually, ironically enough, published by Princeton uh, University Press. Edmund Fawcett has one wonderful quote. He says, well, politics chess, liberals had white. They moved first. Conservatives had black. They countered liberalism's opening moves. This was, uh, of course, in the early 19th century. But then uh, he goes on, in time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity. For the right was in telling ways the stronger the stronger contestant. And I think it's a really profound uh, observation by Fawcett. Um, and, it, and of course, what it does is it falls into the idea of politics as entertainment. In 1985, Neil Postman wrote his wonderful book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it seems as if Gingrich and Ailes and Atwater, they got this way before the left. Why? Yeah, that's a, you know, there's a quote I have in the book by Steve Bannon, uh, President Trump's advisor, said, uh, Democrats come for the pillow fight and Republicans come for the head wound. And I think in terms of understanding politics as a form of entertainment, and not simply that you entertain, but that you destroy through that medium, Republicans were very quick to do that. Part of it is they were the out party. Democrats had been in control in Congress, for example, since 1955. Republicans felt uh, embattled and defeated. So I think they were searching for new ways to uh, achieve their goal, to publicize their ideas. And television and radio were very attractive. Democrats were more comfortable in the status quo because they already had power. And secondly, Republicans were willing to go farther because they were a party that embraced an anti-government philosophy. So if you have that philosophy, you're willing to do things in the media and other arenas that will destroy our ability to govern. Democrats were still stuck uh, and many believe in a good way with the belief that government had to work even if you were very partisan. I think those two factors led Republicans to go much faster into this new world of political slash news entertainment. Right, and not only that, and this makes more sense to me now in terms of his obsession with Verdun, bringing warfare to politics or a, a curious American mixture of warfare and sports, which increasingly I think in America are the same thing. One of the central narratives in your book, Julian, is the way in which uh, um, uh, Gingrich essentially destroyed 
uh, Speaker Jim Wright. This was the first great battle of the Gingrich age. Briefly explain what happened here and why it's so significant. Yeah, it was the Jim Wright became speaker in 1987. And by the summer of 1989, for the first time in American history, he would resign in the middle of his term. It had never happened to a speaker. And Gingrich is the reason this happens. He uses the ethics rules, the post-Watergate ethics rules to create a picture, a portrait of Jim Wright being essentially a criminal. Uh, and and he whips up Washington. Was, he, was there any any truth in it? Well, yes, Wright was not an angel. Uh, much of what he did, though, didn't break any formal ethics rules. Uh, Gingrich never found something where Wright actually violated an ethics rule or a law. Uh, so what Gingrich did is he took things that were true of all members of Congress. It was the way Congress worked, including himself. But he was able to paint a very powerful picture of someone who was fundamentally dangerous to the republic. He blew it way, way out of proportion. And it was enough that Democrats ultimately were privately pressuring Wright to step down because they feared the political consequences. Once Gingrich does this, the Republicans see him as an incredibly effective person. And even those who didn't like the way he was doing this said, well, maybe he's onto something. Maybe he will finally make us a majority on Capitol Hill. Was there more of a of a Machiavelli, do you think, in 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 um, in Gingrich versus a, a Robespierre? <laughs> yes. Uh, I think the funny thing about Gingrich is actually a, a different comparison. He's often thought of as the professorial politician, the big ideas Republican who likes to talk about theories and concepts, but really he's Machiavellian. He is someone who is very good, for better or worse, at understanding how to destroy institutions, how to take down opponents, and that's the focus of what he does in 1989. And of course, he, he, he's still in that business, uh, for better or worse. Um, now he is in the business, of course, of, uh, of, of, of supporting uh, Donald Trump, um, how do you see Newt's role in contemporary America? Very important. He, he'll become speaker in the 90s. He'll have to step down during Bill Clinton's impeachment, President Clinton's impeachment, because Gingrich was having an affair as the Republicans were impeaching the president for lying about an affair. Uh, but in recent years, he's been uh, very vocal. He's been one of President Trump's most loyal supporters. I think he sees him as a kindred spirit. Uh, he was a vice presidential uh, finalist in 2016. Ultimately, he lost out to Mike Pence. But if you follow Twitter, watch Fox News, at any time almost that President Trump does something controversial or says something controversial, Gingrich is one of the first people not only to defend him, but to argue there's a wisdom to what he's doing. Uh, and even in the weeks, uh, the final weeks after the election, Gingrich has been one of the most vocal figures saying that the election was fraudulent, that the outcome uh, isn't legitimate, even at one point calling uh, for the possible arrest of poll workers in Pennsylvania. So he's very much aligned and important, I think, to the Trump presidency. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff about Gingrich. I mean, he's amusing, I guess, in some ways, but in other ways, he's deeply troubling in, 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 in the, the latest uh, Trump farce on the election, Gingrich is accusing Kemp of being 
being dominated by Stacey Abrams. I mean, that's about the most explicit way of playing to extreme racism, the white male dominated by the black female. Um, is he, do you think, ultimately, if you pair away all this stuff, is he a racist? It's about the only thing you can say to him that he gets very defensive. Uh, it's funny, this is one criticism he rejects, but it's always been part of the conversation from the start. The first person he goes after when he gets to Washington is one of the most prominent African-American congressmen, someone named Charlie Diggs. Uh, and so, you know, in the end, I don't know what's in his heart, but certainly he has been one of the Republicans to play uh, to this sentiment, to use this kind of coded, sometimes not. Yeah, I mean, you're very generous, Julian, to give him a heart. When you make those remarks publicly, when you accuse white men of being dominated by black females, I mean, you, you can't. I mean, Trump, even Trump isn't quite as overt as that. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, probably someone would take well, you up equally, on that. I mean, anyway, is neither here nor there. And of course, it's not only blacks who, um, black women who Gingrich is going after these days. It's uh, our old friend George Soros, the, the, the punch bag of, of, the, of new anti-Semitism. Uh, he's playing that game, too. Yep. And this is what happens if you have a mindset where, a partisan victory is the ultimate goal. Nothing else matters. You will be someone who's willing to do that, to play to anti-Semitic rhetoric, racist rhetoric. All of that becomes part of the strategy. Uh, and that toleration is, is something that Gingrich helped lay the groundwork for in the GOP. And we've seen it play out every day in the Trump presidency. He, like other right-wingers, uh, Steve Bannon, has migrated to parlor because Twitter's Twitter and Facebook now are, are cleaning up a little bit uh, morally. Uh, do you think that he's going to grow increasingly right wing if uh, if if Trump does again decide to to run in twenty twenty four? Is Gingrich going to be one of his megaphones, social media megaphones on on he network will. high parlor? He will be. I mean, I don't I, I don't know if he'll ever be part of the team. I think part of the problem with Gingrich is he loves the spotlight so much. It's hard for someone like a Donald Trump, a President Trump, who also demands the spotlight. Well, he's got he's like Giuliani there. He's like right. uh, Christie. I mean, Trump seems to surround himself with these kind of grifters. Yeah, I think Gingrich will remain a very loyal supporter. He's written several books about the Trump presidency that really present him as an Abraham Lincoln, a Franklin Roosevelt. And so there's no reason he will withdraw from the public square in the next few years. And my guess is his attacks will only get nastier. That's been the pattern in his career. What about his legacy, Julian, in terms of Congress? We, of course, have... Um... Uh, two quite uh, dominant people uh, now um, uh, in, in Congress, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader on the Republican side. Are these guys uh, uh, Gingrich 2.0? Oh, for sure. Uh, I argue in the book that the Tea Party is the second generation of Republican uh, Gingrich Republicans. And I think that's that's what we see play out. And there's high cost to this. It's an extremism that has now become mainstream in the GOP that renders governance uh, almost impossible and which leads to an atmosphere in Washington which goes far beyond normal partisan divisions. It's totally destructive. And I think this is Gingrich's legacy. He helped to shape a party that is comfortable and, and promotes 
this kind of politics. And would you go as far uh, as as, as an, a recent Atlantic piece that suggested that uh, um, Gingrich destroyed or, or is destroying American democracy? Uh, well, sure. I mean, I, I don't think he's the only person responsible, uh, but I don't think what we're seeing from the modern Republican Party uh, works for our democracy. And I, I think we've seen this with the pandemic and the kind of response you've had under Republican leadership. This is not sustainable. And so it doesn't destroy the democracy. There's still evidence our democracy works but it certainly erodes the strength of our democracy. And I think the Republicans have a problem and we have a problem with this kind of Republican party. And that's why all these books are coming out trying to understand how did we get to this point? Many books, as you say, have come out. We, we have had many of the authors on the show. We had Stuart Stevens, who I'm sure you, you're familiar with, very, very angry about Trump. We had Peter Weiner, another distinguished conservative arguing that he's a that his criticism of trump is rooted in his conservatism in terms of this ongoing chess game between liberals and conservatives in the early part of the 21st century what should the republican next move be rather than just going after blacks or jews i don't think you're going to see a big change in the republican party so what you will see is probably more of the same what you should but see, i said should i'm not saying yeah, will should look there, there was evidence in the 2020 election uh, that some of the predictions of how Democrats inevitably will capture uh, all sorts of new parts of the electorate are not necessarily true. We saw that with pockets of the Latino vote, for example. So a Republican party that was thinking ahead would try to expand their coalition. Uh, they would try to think of what policies could appeal to more uh, voters in these constituencies, and they would really think about uh, why uh, President Trump felt that he could do what he did and start to kind of generate members of the party who, who don't govern that way, who care about governing. Republicans can care about governing too, but as long as they don't, I don't think this party will change that much. The incentives will all remain the same. Well, Great conversation, Julian Zalazar, and, uh, and a wonderful new book, a uh, part of this library of new books on the crisis on the right. Maybe it's a crisis, maybe it's an opportunity. Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican, the, the rise of the new Republican Party. One of the things I like about it, um, in comparison to uh, uh, Rick Perlstein's Reaganland, is it's much shorter. So in I wouldn't say an easier read, but certainly a shorter read. The two need to be read together, as with so many other books, including uh, Edmund Fawcett's um, Conservatism. Uh, you are at the moment in Sag Harbor in New York. Uh, I wouldn't say that's an unfortunate place to be stuck during the pandemic, but you are stuck there. What else should people be reading, uh, Julian, in addition to your book? Well, the uh, books I've read recently that I really enjoyed, my colleague Eddie Gloud has a wonderful book about James Baldwin and his legacy, which examines Baldwin's writing and work and critique of some of the problems that are inherent to the United States rather than aberration. It's a really beautifully uh, written book. Yeah, and I'm actually going to... Um... I'm going to take advantage of you, Julian, and get you to convince him to come on my show if he's a colleague. Okay. Is he a friend or just a colleague? 
He's a colleague and a friend. Good. Well, Eddie, when if you're watching, we're going to get you. And what else? Uh, it, I had the uh, privilege of interviewing uh, Isabel Wilkerson about her book, Cast. And that's uh, also uh, in this moment when we are wrestling uh, with issues of racism and racial injustice, a, a comparative look of how the United States uh, system evolved uh, is, is really, I, I don't agree with everything in the book, but it is quite a powerful read and an eye-opening way to think about how race works in this country. So that's the and, second. Uh, I hope that um, Newt Gingrich will read both those books. He certainly could could do with a, an education on race in this country, given some of the stupid right. things he's been saying. And finally, uh, Julian? I, a final book I would recommend is Jonathan Alter, a fine reporter and author, has a new book about Jimmy Carter. Um, which is his very best. And after the presidency we have just been through, to look back at a president who was very committed to ideas, to long range policy thinking, just to working in a very different mindset. It's a, it's a terrific read. And, and Jonathan is a beautiful writer. Um, so it's really an epic book about a one term president who couldn't be more different than the one whose term is now ending. And then finally, finally, um, Julian, uh, one minute on what you expect in the Biden presidency. No talk about Trump or uh, Gingrich. What, what, do we, what should we expect in the next year? Very briefly. Contentious. I, I think unless Democrats get control of the Senate, you're going to have rampant obstruction. So the two paths you're going to see right off the bat is more stimulus uh, and trying to get the economy going and pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. His path forward is to curb, contain, and eradicate this. If he does that, he might have a bigger opening for other kinds of policies in the next couple of years. Well, the news isn't good then, Julian. No, right now we're in a bad place. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.